precious Jesus, what a privilege it is to belong body and soul to you. This is our only hope in life and death. That we have a king who is coming to reign and who is already reigning through his word. And who will one day consummate his kingdom. And that will lead to the eternal joy of all his peoples. And the restoration of all things. How we long for that day. King Jesus. How we long to see you face to face. As we come to your word now. And as we consider how you have created us. Would you help us to behold in your word? Behold in this beautiful doctrine. To behold your glory and to be changed from one degree of glory to another into your image. It's only by your spirit helping us that these things will happen. But we are confident that they will. We're confident that your word will not return void and that you will accomplish your purposes by your Holy Spirit. And so with confidence and with expectation, we pray, Lord, help us now. Amen. Amen. Friends, if you have a Bible with, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter one. My question for us this morning for you is what makes you special? What makes you special? What is the most important thing about you? Some of us might answer in line with the way our world answers, which is the most important or special thing about me is something that's unique to me. It's what makes me different from everybody else. What makes me stand out in some way from the crowd. But friends, that's not the answer that scripture gives. See, scripture teaches us that the most important thing about each and every one of us is that we are inescapably related to God. In other words, the most important thing about each and every one of us is not what's unique and repeatable or unrepeatable, excuse me, about us, but it's what we share in common. That we are uniquely and inescapably related to God because God himself has created us in his image. And this morning we're going to explore that doctrine as we continue our series through the New City Catechism with this question. How and why did God create us? Would you humor me by answering it one more time with me? How and why did God create us, Sojourners Church? God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Amen. This is what we're exploring this morning. And our goal for our time together is twofold. To see, first of all, that this is a faithful summary of what Scripture teaches on anthropology or the doctrine of man. 
What scripture teaches about how and why God created us is this. I want us to see, first of all, from scripture that it's true. And then I want us to hear and apply this to ourselves. What does this mean that God created us this way and that it's right for us to live a certain way? What does this mean? Why does it matter to us in the church today? So God helping us, that's where we're going. We're going to start back in Genesis 1, which is why I had you turn there. The scriptures will be up on the screen as well, but we want to be like the Bereans who heard the word proclaimed and then tested it by scripture to see if these things are true. And so I encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to have it open to Genesis 1 this morning. We're going to start where this confession starts. How and why did God create us? The fact is that God created us male and female. We're going to start there by looking in Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. The first thing we see in the beginning of our Bible is that God himself is the sovereign creator of all things. Right? Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's where we started. And God from that created all kinds of things. We read about in Genesis 1 his creation of the sun and moon and stars. And his creation of land and separating land and waters. So creating mountain ranges and seas. And all kinds of living creatures to fill them. And then we read on the sixth day how God turns and creates man. We read in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 unpacks more for us what this creation of mankind as male and female looked like. If you flip over to Genesis 2, verses 5 to 9, we see this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plants of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. It's at this point that this happened. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're very familiar with this story, right? God creating man from the dust of the ground. What's significant to see here is that it was not the form of man. God had formed man from the dust of the ground. It's not the form of man that gave man life, right? It's God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Causing man to be a living creature. This, of course, is the creation of Adam. We read a little bit later in Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, of the creation of woman. 
God puts man in the garden and gives this commission to work and keep it. And then he says this in verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In the intervening verses, we see God bring every creature to the man to be named. And he names every creature, but there's no helper found to be fit for him. So God does this in verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God created man and woman, male and female. Distinct from one another with distinct and complementary roles towards one another. To relate to one another and to relate to God in a certain way. We see that taught clearly here in Genesis 2. The reality is that we are part of creation because we are created this way. Because we were created male and female from the dust of the ground, we are part of of creation. Isaiah talks about it this way. Paul picks it up in Romans talking about us as clay vessels. Isaiah 29, 15 to 16, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. In other words, if you're a potter and you're sculpting a bowl or a vase does the vase say back to you i'm not a vase you made me different or you made me wrong no it's part of your creation and we are part of god's creation we are creaturely in other words so kids might appreciate knowing that you're a creature and your parents might agree with you it's a good thing to be a creature we are created this means that we are dependent on our creator in many ways, we're dependent on our creator for life. It's the life, the breath of life that was breathed into our first parents that gave them life. It's still, as we sang earlier in worship, God who gives breath to us. We are dependent as creatures for on our creator for our existence and our life. We're also dependent as creatures on our creator for our design. For how we were made to be. In other words, God made male and female. That is his order. And we are dependent on him for that order. We are not, as creatures, self-determinative or independent from our creator. We do not get to decide and change how God has created us. This is what it means to be part of creation. But there's... A difference between us and the rest of creation. See, we are a part of creation, but we are a distinct part of creation. We see this hinted at in certain places in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Take, for example, comparing Genesis 1.24 with Genesis 1.27. When God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures, he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Another way to say that might be species. This is not the technical sense of our modern 
taxonomy of different species, but this is the idea of kinds with shared characteristics, what they have in common. Let's bring all of the winged creatures up and let's bring all of the land creatures and cause them to grow and be made. And let's bring all of the sea creatures and create them. This is what God is doing according to their kinds. All of the rest of living creation is created according to their kinds. Male and female, mankind, is created distinguished by gender. Right? Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This points to a distinction between us and the rest of created living beings. Because we were not created according to our kinds, lumped in with land creatures, but we were created distinguished as male and female. You can also notice a distinction if we look at what God says to created creatures and what God says to mankind. In Genesis 1, 21 to 22... God creates these sea creatures and blesses them and says this, Genesis 1, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth, right? All creatures are given this command, be fruitful and multiply and fill this creation that I have made. But mankind is given a distinctly different command, even though it shares some similarities. Genesis 1, God blessed them and God said to them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This call to subdue and have dominion points towards a difference between creatures and humankind, right? We are creaturely, we are part of creation, but there is a distinction We are a distinct part of creation. This gets us to the second part of this answer. How and why did God create us? God created us male and female, part of creation. And God created us distinctly in his own image. This is what's distinct about you and I from the rest of creatures of creation. That we are created in the image of God. The capstone of creation is not... The sun, as many have been tempted to worship it. It's not the sun. It's not the stars in the sky. It's not the sun rise or sunset. It's not anything we see in outer space. It's not anything we'll find here on earth like the mountains or the depths of the sea or the beautiful creatures God has made. The capstone of all creation, as we see in Psalm 8, is you and I, human beings, created in the image of God as we read in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, right? God said, let us make man in our image. We're very familiar with these verses. This is the imago Dei, the image of God within us. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? I'm sure that being created in the image of God is not new news to you. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does that have to do with us? How do we see that? In ourselves. There's two aspects I want to draw out for us. And to help us see those aspects, I'm going to look at a few quotes from a book by Owen Strand called Reenchanting Humanity. 
So there's a few spots in here today where I'm going to quote from this book. I commend this book to you guys as a helpful tool to think about the image of God within us. How it's been distorted by sin and how Christ is restoring it. Owen Strand, re-enchanting humanity. He says this about what it means to be created in the image of God. Mankind is not God. He is a mere creature, but a creature with a limitless charge. This small, non-flying, ungilled being has great responsibility and explosive potential. He is made by God to display God to the world God has formed. To one another, to the birds, to the heavens themselves, the human race is a testament to the reality of divinity. To look at man is to confront, however distantly, the Almighty. In other words, one of the things it means to be created in the image of God is that we, in some respect, mirror God to creation. We, in some respect, mirror God to creation. We can see this in the creation of man as male and female. What have we learned about God? Last time we saw, when we covered the catechism, that God is a triune God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, from before creation, God himself has existed in relationship among persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so creating mankind in his image, he created male and female to relate together, just like God does in his triune nature. We reflect through our maleness and femaleness and being united as one in ways like marriage and family and in ways like being united together in the church. We reflect God in his triunity. We mirror God to creation. We display God to the world God has formed through how he has made us. This is what's called the structural aspect of the image of God. Anthony Hokma in his book, Created in God's Image, calls it this. It's structural. It's unique to us. It's part of who we were created to be. It's part of how we were created. It's what's called an ontological reality. In other words, you have the image of God if you are a human being. And you can't help but mirror God to creation because of that. But there's another aspect to the image of God. Owen Strand says this later in his book. The image of God is an ontological reality. You are either in the image of God or not. But the image is not static. Those made in the image of God are made for action. For embodied worship through obedient rulership. In other words, not only do we mirror God to creation by how he has made us, our very reality of what we're like, but we are meant to represent God in creation through our actions. We see this in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 when God gives Adam and Eve this command, right? To exercise dominion over all of creation, to subdue creation. As they are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, To rule over creation. The image of God is meant to go forth in representing God to creation. Anthony Hokma calls this the functional image of God. What we do with what God has made us to be. Right? In one sense, God speaks us into existence. And we mirror God by our very nature. As created in the image of God. And in another sense, we're meant as human beings to answer back to God and say, here I am for your service. 
And that's part of the functional or representative nature of the image of God. So two ways we image God. By our very existence and by what we do with that existence. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches, in summary, that we are created persons. We are creaturely. Romans 9, Paul picks up on this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? We are creaturely. We are created and not independent from our creator. And yet we are created in the image of God as persons. Like we see in places in scripture like Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. We are meant to respond to our creation by obedient worship. By choice. By what we do. Which means we have some level of independent moral responsibility. See creatures just created. Like frogs have no moral responsibility to image their creator, right? They are, they just are. They do what God has designed them to do. And in some respects, they show his glory, but they have no moral responsibility to show that glory. But because you and I were created in the image of God, we have a moral responsibility to respond rightly to that, to fulfill our purpose. And that is the next part. Of our question. How and why did God create us? He created us for a purpose, right? God created us male and female as creatures. In his own image as persons. We are creaturely persons. To do what? To know him. To love him. To live with him. And to glorify him. To fulfill this created purpose. Of imaging God. He gives us some hints at what this looks like. Right in the text of Genesis. Genesis 1.28, when God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gives Adam and Eve and us work to do. Exercising dominion. God's rule representing him over the earth. We see in Genesis 2.15-17, God give an explicit work command to Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it. You shall surely die. What we see here is that our creator gives us work to do and blesses us with everything we need to do the work. And part of that blessing and part of that commandment is also setting limits on us. What we can do and can't do. For Adam and Eve, it was, all of these trees are for you. Work and keep this garden. You may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A limit set on us because we are still creatures. We are still part of creation. Our job then as created persons, as creaturely image bearers, is to image God through obedient worship. Paul picks up this theme in Romans 12 when he says that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship, he says, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is acceptable and perfect. 
The way we live out our obedient worship to God, in other words, is by discerning what his acceptable and perfect will for us is, which he's told us in creation, right? He's given us this perfect and acceptable will revealed to us in his word and through the world that he has made. This is what it means to image God. I want to read for you what we affirm the fullest expression of our affirmation of this answer. How and why did God create us? In our elder affirmation of faith, chapter 4, verse section 2, excuse me, chapter 4, section 2, it says this, We believe that God directly created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from his side. We believe that Adam and Eve were the historical parents of the entire human race, that they were created male and female equally in the image of God without sin, that they were created to glorify their maker, ruler, provider, and friend by trusting his all-sufficient goodness, admiring his infinite beauty, enjoying his personal fellowship, and obeying his all-wise counsel. And then in God's love and wisdom, they were appointed differing and complementary roles in marriage as a type of Christ in the church. I think it's pretty easy to see that that is clearly taught to us in Genesis 1 and 2 and unfolded in the rest of scriptures. This is a faithful teaching of scripture. But why does it matter? What is the impact of this on you and I today? That's found in this last section of the catechism here, which says this. It's right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. When we read Genesis 1 and the end of the account of the creation of man, we see that God looked out on all that he had made and everything was very good. It is right that Adam and Eve were living according to how God had created them according to his glory and for his glory. At the end of Genesis 2, when God presents Eve to Adam and they're united as one flesh, they are naked and not ashamed. Everything is good. Everything flourished, as we'll see next time in the catechism, under God's loving rule. It is good that God's people live this way. It is right that we who are created by God should live to his glory as Psalm 1 shows us this picture of the blessed one who meditates on the law of the Lord and lives according to his commandments and is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit and doesn't wither in the winter. It is good. It is right that we who are created by God should live to his glory. But this is not a given in our modern culture. This is not a given in the world we live and move and have our being in. We live in a world that does not see this as a good thing, that does not agree that it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Owen Strand writes this, and I believe he's right. If the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance, how man may be forgiven by God, and the major issue of the 20th century was that of authority, whether the Bible is inerrant, then the major issue of our time is that of anthropology. This is the doctrine of man, what we're talking about. Does the human person live in an ordered cosmos and have an appointed identity or does he make his own identity in a world without God? That's the question of our age. Do we live in a ordered cosmos and have an appointed identity or do we make our own identity in a world without God? That's key to understanding why this doctrine is important because what we just saw is that scripture clearly teaches 
That we live in an ordered cosmos and have an appointed identity. And yet the culture we live in clearly believes that we make our own identity in a world without God. Friends, I think the easiest place for us to see this clearly is reflecting on the sexual revolution. Reflecting on issues such as gender identity and transgenderism and homosexuality and all other sexual perversions that are attempts to somehow find meaning and significance in a world without God, to form an identity in a world without God. To help us see this, I want to look at a few things. One of them is a quote by a woman named Jane Ozane, who is a prominent Anglican across the pond over in Britain. She's a prominent Anglican and advocate of LGBTQ agenda issues. And she's being interviewed because over in Britain, there is controversy over something called conversion therapy. That's a technical term, which we don't have to get into. But the idea is, how should Christians respond to those who claim some kind of LGBTQ plus identity in the church? And the question for Christians is, if you're banning this, are we still going to be able to pray for one another? And the prime minister is encouraging them and saying, yes, you'll still be able to pray for one another. And and Jane Ozane does not think that is good. Here's what she says. As a Christian, I too take freedom of religion very seriously, up until the point that it causes harm. We know that spiritual abuse occurs in various religious settings, which is why there are already precedents of when the government has intervened to protect people from harm. In this context, prayer that allows true and free expression of someone's sexuality or gender identity without a predetermined outcome is right and proper. However, prayer that focuses on ensuring someone conforms to a norm causes untold damage, is degrading, and leads many to contemplate taking their lives. Listen listen to that again, the difference. Prayer, exploring sexual identity without a predetermined outcome, is good. Prayer seeking to conform to a norm is bad. That's exactly what Owen Strand is talking about. That's exactly what we see contrary to what Genesis 1 and 2 teach. Genesis 1 and 2 is a norm. We are created as image bearers in the image of God. And this is a rejection of that norm under the guise of causing harm. In other words, what happens is those in these, the, the proponents of the sexual revolution in our society reject our createdness. They reject the idea that there's a given order. Who I am is not a given. I am to conform to. Rather, who I am is something to be discovered from within. I need to look within to determine who I am. That's not what scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us to look to God to determine who we are. Because the most important thing about us is that we are inescapably related to God. And yet, this is rejected by many in our culture. The sexual revolution also rejects our purpose. By saying, rather than saying our bodies are what are given to us as an endowment to be used to fulfill God's purposes, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion, work and keep the garden, represent God to creation. Rather than viewing our bodies as for those ends, 
proponents of the sexual revolution view our bodies as ends to fulfill our own desires. As a vessel to express our own personal sense of identity. With the goal then being individual happiness, fulfillment, and psychological well-being. Notice the language of harm. I support religious freedom as long as it's not causing harm. And if you deny what I believe to be true about myself, then you are causing me psychological harm. If you impose upon me a norm or a standard, you are causing me psychological harm. That's what our culture believes. And that is so clearly contrary to what God has revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. Friends, what happens is that our createdness and our purpose are rejected, but the image of God cannot be rejected. You see, those who hold to the sexual revolution cannot reject the structural image of God or the givenness of the fact that they are image bearers. And so image bearers are going to image. And we were created to be worshipers. So image bearers are going to worship. But we're going to do it in profoundly broken ways. So what ends up happening is that a new religion is born. What's called neo-paganism. Which is the idea that there's new paganism. Going away from God, rejecting God, and creating a new religious identity. Think about it this way. The new order that is a given is now what I believe to be true about myself. Okay. The new end is now fulfilling myself by bringing my body and my lifestyle into alignment with what I believe to be true about myself. You don't believe this is a new religion. Think about it this way. The new orthodoxy is a sexually enlightened and judgment free society. And if you are not part of the new orthodoxy, you will be excommunicated. Richard Dawkins recently, who you may or may not know, but he's one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, had his humanist of the year award taken away from him because he said that someone who is a chromosomal man and claims to be a woman is not a woman. In other words, he violated the orthodoxy of this new religion and said, this is not true. And so he was kicked out. He was excommunicated. His awards were taken away. Even though he rejects all sense of God, he was not in line with the sexual revolution. And so he was punished. Not only that, but we have new priests. The new priests are the psychologists who now tell us what appropriate worship looks like. They tell us what is normal, right? It's the function of the priests in the Old Testament to tell God's people what is normative and what does worship look like. And now, in our culture, psychologists do that for us. They tell us what is well-adjusted, what is normal, and normal is a well-adjusted, sexually realized self. Normal is bringing your world and expression into line with what you believe to be true about yourself. It is not good. It is a new religion. The new religion has kings, lawmakers who classify clear biblical teaching as hate speech under the guise of preventing harm. And the new religion has prophets who mock those who would hold to the truth. Prophets like Taylor Swift says this in her song, You Need to Calm Down. You're somebody that we don't know, but you're coming at my friends like a missile. 
Why are you mad when you could be glad? You see what she's referring to there. You could be glad, but sunshine on the street at the parade, but you would rather be in the dark ages. Making that sign must have taken all night. You just need to take several seats and then try to restore the peace and control your urges to scream about all the people you hate. Because shade never made anybody less gay. You need to calm down. You're being too loud. What she and others are trying to do is show that the only reason you could be opposed to this sexual revolution, this new religion, is because you're afraid. Because you're hateful. Not because you're trying to follow what God's word teaches about us as created persons, created in the image of God and given an order and a purpose. This is the function of prophets, to mock those who would reject the new religion. And celebrities are doing a wonderful job at it. This is a wicked and false religion. It is not neutral. It is not just a differing viewpoint in our culture. It must be stood against. It must be rejected by God's people. I think it behooves us, though, to ask the question, why would people who are created in the image of God reject and rebel against that image? Why would they reject and rebel against the how and the why of God who has created us? I think the answer is because we are fundamentally and profoundly broken in our image bearing. We know that it's very good for those who are created by God to live according to his glory. And yet we know from experience that that is fundamentally broken in so many ways by our sin. And that brokenness is profoundly manifested for those who are sexually disordered. Jane Hosein again says this. Some may remember that I ended the Synod's first debate on homosexuality by reading a draft suicide note written by someone struggling with their desire for love, but knowing that the only thing that could satisfy this hunger was forbidden fruit. The letter was my own, written during this time of pain, a cry from the created to the creator asking why I had been created with such a cruel dichotomy. Those who are sexually broken feel the brokenness of our image bearing in such profound ways. Feeling this desire for love, but knowing that the only thing that could satisfy it was hunger for forbidden fruit. We ought to have tremendous compassion towards this brokenness. But friends, we cannot support the attempts to fix this brokenness by making what is forbidden no longer forbidden. We cannot embrace a new religion as an attempt to show compassion and care for this brokenness. See, what happens is those within the sexual revolution and in our culture would propose this as the solution to our brokenness. We take and we turn to creation and we try to make up for it. That's what our first parents did in the garden. They were naked and unashamed and then they took the fruit and ate it and they saw their nakedness and they felt their shame and what did they do? They turned to creation, sowed some fig leaves to try to cover their shame. This is what happens all the time. And it is not a solution for this disorder. It is not a solution to fix our brokenness. We constantly try to fix our brokenness with creation. We do it in all kinds of ways. And it is not a true and lasting hope. But there is a true and lasting hope for all of us. That true and lasting hope is in the true image bearer, what Paul calls the man of heaven in 1 Corinthians 15. See, he says this, the sad reality is that we all bear the image of the man of dust. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The reality is that we have all borne the image of the man of dust. We've all loved the dust. We've all been convinced that somehow we can use creation to fix our brokenness. See, we've all been guilty of what those in the sexual revolution are guilty of, of rejecting God's design and claiming our own. We look at ourselves and we think we may be blank slates with limitless potential. We can do whatever we put our mind to if we just try hard enough and just push hard enough. We look to the things around us to satisfy, finding gain in groaning things like we talked about last week from Ecclesiastes. Trying to use our kids or our job or our home or our reputation as a way to make ourselves happy. We look to our own personal happiness and fulfillment as the end that we were created for. Just like those in the sexual revolution do, our ways are just a little bit more socially acceptable in the church. But we still do it. We still bear the image of this man of dust. But there is hope because we will one day bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the promise that we've been given that Christ, who is the true image bearer, is the one that has come to show us what it means to be truly man. Truly mankind created in the image of God. Colossians 1, 13 to 15, the father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, the beloved son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the true image bearer. He is the one that Adam was meant to grow up to be. He is the one that came and perfectly embodied obedient worship for us. He is the one that came and had no sin. He had no inclination towards sin. He always lived for the glory of God. He lived in full dependence on the spirit of God as a created, as a creaturely being, both creaturely sharing in our flesh and blood and divine bearing the true image sharing in The fullness of his father. In Christ we learn what true image bearing looks like. And we're given hope that we too will be changed to be like that. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. For God who said, let light shine out of our darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we behold Christ, as we grow nearer to Christ, come to know him more, we are changed to be like him. Not only do we see his example and not only are we forgiven our rejection of creation and created order. But we are actually changed to be more like him. We see that this is the end that we were created for. Romans 8. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, friends, we don't have to try to find a purpose or goal for our lives because we've already been given one 
to be conformed into the image of the Son, to be conformed into the image of the true human, Christ Jesus. See, Adam was fully human, and so are we in Adam, but we are not true humans until we come to know the true human, Christ Jesus. This is our hope. This is our destiny to be conformed to the true man. Owen Strand says this, the father has initiated the project of anthropological reenchantment, making us a new humanity in Christ through the power of the spirit. In Adam, we are fully human, but we are not truly human in Christ. We become truly human for we are remade in the image of the true man. All who are in Christ friends are a new creation. And bear the image of Christ and are being changed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That is our true hope. That is the hope that we can hold out to any brokenness we encounter in the world. In our own lives and the lives of those around us in the lives of the world that we live in. We can hold out the hope of being conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And being fully realized in how and why God has created us. So sojourners, let's hold out that hope together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more that we could say and see and meditate on. There's so much more to walking in your ways in obedient worship. You've given us a whole scripture to meditate on those things. But thank you, God, that you have revealed to us where the center of it all is in your son, Jesus, and in your will to conform us into his image. I pray that that would bring hope to broken and hurting hearts here in our congregation and in the world. Would you help us to be able to daily say it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. And would you help us to put our hope for living to your glory, not in our own works, but in Christ Jesus who works powerfully within us. We cannot do this. We are not strong enough, not fit enough. We are weak and frail and in need of your help. But you are strong and you promise help and you have given us your spirit to make us more like Jesus. So thank you, God. Help us to have confidence in these truths and to be firmly convicted in the truth of your word. We pray. Amen.